Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Um, I promised you a little bit, a little Bible study, so I'd ask you to pull out your Bible and uh, open to sec to uh, Second Kings, chapter eighteen. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of, uh, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, tell me real quick, Bible study students, what's the difference between the king of Israel and the king of Judah? Very good. The northern ten tribes. and the, So you know that King Hezekiah lived after the great schism of, that took place in the, in the Davidic kingdom. Because of whom? Who caused the break in the north and the south? Rehoboam. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, both. But yeah, Rehoboam, you're right. Okay, Rehoboam, very good. Uh, and King Hezekiah came along many years later, and look what it says about him. He was the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. You should stop and drop your Bible. A king of Judah who actually does something good in the, right, in the eyes of the Lord, this is, this is uh, unprecedented. Okay, uh, he was a righteous king, and at that time on the on the uh, on the Mount of Olives, many of you have been there with me before. Was set up uh, pagan altars to the false gods of Solomon's wives. And uh, he tore them all down. He celebrated Passover, which had not been celebrated since the people of God had entered the promised land. Okay? He cleansed the temple, and he did something else. You'll see in verse 13. Verse 13, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Okay? And I'm going to come down to verse... Um, I'm going to come down to verse 17. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Robsuris, and Robshikah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood at the conduit of the upper pool. Why would the enemy go to the conduit of the upper pool? If you've got an army, where are you going to go? Water! Fresh water, exactly. So they came and camped there and were drink, was drinking the fresh water in Jerusalem. Now I want to have you t turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is just a few pages down the run there to chapter 32. Look at verse 30. Second Chronicles 32:30. The same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. Now stop. What did he do? He plugged up the outlet of the spring and tunneled underneath through solid rock underneath Jerusalem from the beginning of the spring and also from inside the city. The two workforces chipped through solid rock. It's one of the wonders of the world. Nobody can figure out how they found each other because the tunnel goes like this. Okay, And all of a sudden they came together and met and the waters of the spring of Gihon, which are one of the rivers of paradise, flowed into the city of David. The, the army of the Assyrians could not get the fresh water and there in the city, King Hezekiah built the pool of Siloam where what happened? Jesus healed the blind man. I was ordained in the Byzantine tradition on the Sunday of the healing of the blind man. And unbeknownst to King Hezekiah, so many, many years ago, Jesus chose to use his work as the conduit of grace by which he would heal the blind man, and also knowing that I would be ordained on that Sunday. And so... 
my prayer, my prayer, I ask you to pray for me that I could also work to do God's work in ways that I don't, I, you know, we're never going to know the good work that we've done through the Institute, whether it goes for the board, whether it goes for our, our benefactors, uh, whether it goes for people that attend, those watching online, how many people have been impacted by our work. Jesus uses us this way because we are his hands and his feet, those of us who have been baptized into him. Amen, brothers and sisters? I just baptized my second child on uh, this, uh, I baptized a, a baby last Sunday and another baby this Sunday. It was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. It was amazing, amazing. So please pray for me that I can continue to do God's work and serve him, and I'll continue to pray in the same way uh, through the intercession of St. Hezekiah, the great righteous king of Judah. Our speaker this evening holds degrees from the University of Natal in South Africa, the Gregorian University in Rome, the Weston Jesuit School of Theology, which we forgive you for, and <laughs> he received his PhD from Boston College. Uh, he has been a professor and spiritual director in high schools, research schools, seminaries, universities, including Catholic Distance University, where he currently teaches. His publications include an undergraduate textbook on the theology of the sacraments, book reviews, numerous articles for technical spiritual journals and pastoral periodicals, as well as two books, and I'm only halfway through. He is an oblate of Mary Immaculate. He speaks English, French, Italian, Afrikaans fluently, while being able to read and speak fluently German, Spanish, Dutch, Latin, and Greek. Please, please join me in welcoming for the first time, I hope not the last, uh, a wonderful, I would just give a little personal thing, and that is that some of you came to me and said, you have to have Father Bevel come and speak at the Institute, and invited me to come and hear a homily he gave at St. Michael's, and I remember that homily quite well because I was blown over with the number of scriptural texts that were used, the spiritual insights, and I said, absolutely, this is the kind of guy we want teaching us at the Institute of Catholic Culture, so please welcome Father Bevel. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Good sir. Video. Thank you very much. Good evening. It's a privilege to be with you. Uh, excuse me for sitting down, but my health took a lousy turn about two years ago, so I don't stand unless I absolutely have to, which is Eucharist and nothing else. <laughs> but what I'd like to do is to talk to you about tongues of fire, the solemnity of Pentecost, You'll recognize that window. I'm sure you've seen it. It hits you right in the face when you walk into St. Peter's. And Bernini got it right. And the reason I'm starting with a bit of architecture is because of the fact that we're talking about God who is spirit and God is working with us. And so we've got to have these beautiful visual representations to help us to appreciate something that is invisible. And so Bernini had to produce this wonderful Baroque uh, window with this tumble of angels coming out of it and of course in the center the Spirit of God himself. And so from that 17th century picture, let's see if this system is working. It's working beautifully. You've seen the whole altar that is built up around this window. And what you have there is a, a tourist picture. That's why it's a little on the blurred side. It's not a, uh, one of these fancy pictures you'll buy in a shop. But I wanted it because there are people in the picture. And this is very important for appreciating Pentecost. So you have the Holy Spirit in the center, in that bright, bright, bright window. You have the tumble of angels coming down. You have the chair of Peter held by the four doctors of the church. And below that, you have an altar on which is being celebrated the Blessed Eucharist. And you have actual people standing there offering their spiritual sacrifice saying, yes, amen. This is our offering too. 
So Bernini got the whole architectural flow of what is happening in Pentecost, and he put that together. What I wanted to do then is to say from these people receiving Eucharist, they then get told one of the uh, acclamations at the end, the injunction by the priest, go and proclaim the gospel. And there you have the completion of the architecture. The people walk out down the center aisle, go out into the great arms of St. Peter's, the Bernini colonnades, and the arms of the colonnades reach out into the city of Rome, which is a mess, but it needs the gospel. And so these people, if you like, are completing the dynamic that we're now going to talk about in the scriptures. We're back at the center there, and then we start with the liturgy. And we're doing this because liturgy in Catholicism has always been the uh, lex orandi, the law of prayer, is the law lex credendi, the law of believing. And so if we are worshiping, that is already a containing all the truth that we are, have received from Almighty God. And so we can go to putting some kind of scriptural background to this liturgy, and we can say to ourselves, if we go to the scriptural background, there's a long scriptural background to Pentecost. Pentecost has meant a number of different things over the millennia. Originally, going back to Leviticus, it was the day after 50 days after Passover. And so the people were celebrating the end of the Passover season, the end of something. And tomorrow, we go back to ordinary time in the church the end of something and the beginning of something else. You have the uh, idea among most Jewish people that Pentecost also means giving of the law 50 days after the um, exodus from Egypt. And so, again, 50 days the end of something, leaving all the seductions of Egypt, very much like Washington, D.C. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> and very much like Washington, D.C., you've literally got to pull yourself out of that stuff to be able to be clear-headed enough to receive the law. You have the words that the Holy Spirit will come uh, in John's Gospel and he will teach you all truth. Part of the truth is in fact the Old Testament. It is the law. We haven't discarded those things. We are now working with the Old Testament. We do at almost every Eucharist that we celebrate. Beautiful collect this morning at the Mass. Pour out the gifts of the Spirit across the face of the earth. This is the priest in the name of the people asking God across the face of the earth with the divine grace that was at work when the gospel was first proclaimed. Pour out the Spirit. It's not a little bit of the Spirit, it is the Spirit of God. Because God is a Spirit, God doesn't come to pieces. Okay? We don't get little bits. What we get is God whole and entire, and God manifests Himself in all these different ways, which is why it's so complicated to talk about Pentecost. Now, before we finish, there's also 
a feast of first fruits, which happens 50 days after Passover. So they planted the seed at the beginning, and now they are coming to God with their offerings of the first fruits. Their grain, their fruit, their oil, uh, representatives from their calves, their uh, goats, sheep, and so forth. And what they're doing is they're saying, look, we know that it was only because of what God did working mysteriously in the earth, working mysteriously in the life of the herd, working mysteriously in the growing of the olive branches that gives us the multiplying of the olives and the grain and the chickens and the sheep and the goats and so forth. And as a sign of that faith, they come to Jerusalem. It's not by accident that there are Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the Christian Pentecost. This is all, if you like, part of the plan. These people have been prepared over centuries to go from being a simple agrarian people to being a people chosen by God. And the feasts that they celebrate, they learn that there are more layers of meaning that come out. More layers of meaning that are being added slowly, it's a pedagogy, it's a way that God works so that these people can begin to be transformed because God knew that we are rather stiff-necked. And yeah, I know for myself, you of course are perfect and, and <laughs> have no error. But for me, I know that I am stiff-necked. I resist. And it's only when I started writing a book on uh, Benedict XVI's uh, Verbum Domini that I began to realize what I'd been missing in Scripture. And Benedict, God bless his cotton socks, explained this in a beautiful way. And it's absolutely crucial that we begin to appreciate the history of this people because we are part of that people. We are part of the people of God and we are connected all the way back to Abraham, to even beyond, to Adam and Eve. God has been working because human beings who are let's be polite, stiff-necked, take time to let this stuff soak in. We have so many competing things in the readings for the vigil last night. We read the uh, story of the Tower of Babel. And what you have in the story of the Tower of Babel is an act of pride. These people had everything, but they were too proud. Okay, we're on the earth, but we want to be in heaven. And on it, we're going to build a tower that will bring us to heaven. And what do you find? You find God confuses their languages, and they no longer can build the tower. That act of pride separated people and separation is going to be one of the things that is healed in this uh, series of events that flow from Pentecost. So just kind of stay with me as I introduce each of these themes and then we'll start to pull them all together. If we look at the first reading, First reading, New Testament reading, and we have Luke saying, when the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, they were all in one place together. Now, there are two 
words there, groupings of words that are important. First of all, this idea of fulfillment. <coughs> fulfillment is something that we don't celebrate enough of. And as Father was saying earlier, we're losing our sense of Catholic language. Here you have this idea of fulfillment in Scripture. It means that the gestation period has come to an end. The baby is about to be born. It means that something is going to be accomplished. It means that is the time of the birth of the church. It means something that was hinted at all the way through the Old Testament with the people of God is now coming to fulfillment. What was foreshadowed is now ready to stand on its own, do what it's meant to do, and God's plan moves forward. And that's why it's very important to realize that Pentecost finishes the Easter season. We have had Lent, we've had Holy Week, we've had Easter, resurrection of Jesus, appearances of Jesus, ascension, Pentecost. This is God working in ways that we can understand. Historical events, and that will come up again as another one of the themes that we must appreciate. So if we move to what somebody like Chrysostom wrote about Acts 2, which is where the reading for the Mass this morning came from, he says, what is this Pentecost? The time when the sickle was put to the harvest. Now we've heard about harvest already. A harvest of grain, the end of the growing season. Now you have the harvest being the harvest of men and women joining the faithful church. He carries on, and the ingathering was made. Important word there, ingathering. Remember that the, uh, they were all together in the upper room? The Holy Spirit is now going to gather in other people into that group. This is dynamic. This is not a sit in your pews and watch a spectacle. It is not going to a movie with strangers, watching the movie, and walking out as a bunch of strangers still. This is a dynamic movement of the reforming of the people of God. So we have the ingathering was made. See now the reality when the time had come to put in the sickle of the word. For here as the sickle keen-edged came the spirit down. What you have is this delicate play that Chrysostom was very aware of between the mission of the Word, Jesus Christ incarnate, and the mission of the Spirit making everything happen. Making Him happen, first of all. The Holy Spirit comes down upon Mary. The Holy Spirit is the one who is active in any of Jesus' healings and so forth. It is a continuous facilitating of what the Word is doing in the concrete world. If we're in a culture, and I'm not saying anybody here is in this culture, that doesn't get a grasp of history, we don't appreciate as much how much this Spirit working in the world with real men and real women making things happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. If somebody falls down in the street, we can't stand and say, well, somebody's going to pick them up. God is not going to act there except through someone. And this is the key 
to appreciating where Pentecost is going. It's a flow of events that takes us out into St. Peter's Square, out into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that was a little piece from uh, Chrysostom's homily, and it's very much a tying it together of the sense of the harvest and the sense of the gathering in. With that, we come to another part of the first reading. We said when the time for Pentecost was fulfilled, we discussed that. We've seen how harvest happens at the right time. They were all in one place together. Either that's just a short sentence of four or five words, or it is a time of amazing richness, a really pregnant phrase. Because in fact, what uh, Luke is telling us is that there's a corporate sense of this group gathered together. Now, we use corporate too much as a word that is applied to businesses. A very diminished notion of corporate responsibility. If you want a really strong sense of corporate responsibility, go and work with indigenous peoples in Africa. And you will find in the average village the way they all work with each other. There's a lot of evil there too. I'm not idealizing it. But there is a really strong sense that I am personally bonded to everyone else in the village. I am connected with the kids, with the adults, with the elderly, and we are the village. Now, shift that to a spiritual level where all of these members of this initial group of Christians receive the Spirit of God, one would think that that would be the sign that we are one mind and one heart. Courtesy of the Spirit of God that we all share. This overcomes ethnic differences. It overcomes age differences. It overcomes social differences. It overcomes economic differences. It is far beyond anything that we can imagine in terms of unity. Why? Because what is the great example of unity? And I didn't ask that as a rhetorical question. Somebody tell me. The Trinity. The One God. All right? And that unity is what we are being drawn into by the Spirit of God. It's not something we're going to pull off on our own. So we get drawn into that by cooperating with the Spirit of God, and that cooperating is going to occupy some of the readings that we had for the Mass this morning. Now this idea of this corporate sense of community is captured very well in a word that got lost. We're back again at Father's point about Catholic terminology. And Cardinal Ratzinger, he was a humble priest at this point, he wrote a commentary on the uh, document Lumen Gentium. And the document Lumen Gentium is about the church. And the word that the bishops used frequently was an old one from the 18th century that had gotten lost, had been found again by the theologians, and was starting to be used again by theologians, including young Joseph Ratzinger. And he points this out in his commentary. He says it is wonderful that the bishops at the council are using this word. What is the word? Communio. That's the Latin word. 
And what does it mean? It means communion. It means communication. It means common life. All those different senses. And there was another young theologian who was following the council. He hadn't been invited by the names, name of Hans Urs von Balthasar, Swiss theologian, a priest, diocesan priest in Switzerland. And what he did was he started a journal with the help of people like Joseph Ratzinger, a young fellow by the name of Karol Wojtyla, uh, another young guy by the name of Yves Congar, another one by the name of Henri de Lubac. And what you have in that handful of names are the best theologians in the 20th century in the church. These guys, most of them, were advisors at the council, and they got together and started Communio, which is a journal that you can see on the internet, for example. But in one of the Communio articles, he talks about, this is von Balthasar now, the project of Communio. He says, the universal Catholic community is not just one among many, bestowed on us by God, freely given, it is the only one, only one. And he's talking as an accurate theologian. It is the only one that is unrestricted in scope. So what he is saying, and he's telling the people who are working on the Communio uh, publications, because they're published in a whole bunch of different languages, there are communio groups all around the world, but they're trying to study this idea of communio and see why is a community that is breathing with the Spirit of God, why is that community so exceptional? And when we make it less exceptional by saying, well, if you're from the Enlightenment, uh, well, people's religion should be private and it shouldn't have any public voice at all. Uh, we don't mind if you worship, but don't say a darn thing in public. All these different ways that secular, agnostic, uh, social movements try to get in the way of the church and its absolutely monumental presence that it should have in this country, France, Germany, pick a country. The council had realized that there's something very special <coughs> about the Catholic communion because it is breathing the Spirit of God. And it's very interesting that you have uh, in Bernini's altarpiece there, the altar of the chair, the four doctors of the church, Augustine, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Athanasius, East and West. Because all of these guys were very clear on this special nature of this community. Not a community like any corporation. This is why you see that churches that try to organize themselves as corporations collapse. Not a uh, community that organizes itself according to social class or according to economic class, those always break down eventually. What you have here is the Spirit of God himself pulsing inside the community. Now, there are people in the church who are not interested, but most people, most of the time, do want to be part of this breathing organism that is the Catholic Church. And consequently, you have this wondrous sense when you meet people who are living in that uh, mentality of the sheer power of the Holy Spirit. Just take a side note here. It's very interesting, according to Gregory of Nyssa, why God chose fire. 
Fire naturally imparts a sense of heat to those who touch it. Here you have this sense of people who are living in the spirit. With all its component parts, one part does not have the heat more intense than the other less intense. We all have these gifts from God. We are all given habitual grace so that we will literally be renewed from the inside out. But as long as it is fire at all, it exhibits an invariable oneness. This is the oneness of God himself. With itself absolute, as an absolute complete sameness of activity. The sameness of activity is not what we understand sameness to be. No, if, if we did that last week, we've got to do something different this week. Sameness is, we're being trained by the culture, sameness is boring according to our culture. We've got to have more, we've got to have better, we've got to be louder. And in fact, if you are dealing with the infinite good of God, there's nothing boring about it. And you know when you meet people who are working in the spirit of the way in which conversations are different, subjects of conversations are different, the ideas that are flowing in the group of people are different because they're not bound by the society and the fact that society, in this country at least, is organized so that people make money. And if you can't make money out of something, excuse me, it's called monetizing society. If you can't monetize it, you don't do it. But in fact, the best things don't involve money, as we all know. Consequently, what you have is this uh, effort on the part of Gregory of Nyssa, one of the great theologians, uh, Cappadocian father, who is saying, look, we've got to look at the fire as being ordinary, because we all know what fire is, but it's showing us something extraordinary, something that we will never fathom completely, and that is the nature of the Spirit of God himself. So we can say then that this notion of fire brings a whole deeper sense to the presence of the Spirit. And we could talk about the wind, the image of the wind. That too would help us to appreciate something of this dynamism of the Spirit. But we had enough wind today, so let's go on. <laughs> Back to the first reading, one of the people says, we are Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Might as well put that up. There we go. Inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and the districts of Libya near Cyrene. What we're dealing with here, and I wouldn't have put this map in if I'd known you had that map up there, but <laughs> what you have is the map of the Mediterranean, and you have uh, Pontus just under, you know, where the Black Sea is there. You have Cappadocia just below it. You have Media. You have uh, Parthia off to the right, right on the edge of the map, Syria, Jerusalem, Arabia, Egypt, Cyrene, and I left out Asia. What you have here is not, again, a trivial image. The man who is saying to the apostles, we come from all these different countries, yet we can hear you in our own language, he is saying, look, we are concrete men and women, Jewish for the large part, and we are real members of the human race. 
And God is speaking to us. Whether we speak the language of North Africa, whether we speak the language of Asia, whether we speak the land of uh, even further west and get into Latin and Greek and so forth. There is a wonder here that should make our, the hair grow, stand up on the back of our necks. It's an extraordinary expression of the way in which the Spirit of God can work if the Spirit of God is allowed to work. But that depends on us. In the psalm, a lot in that psalm, but we're just going to look at one verse. If you take away their breath, they perish and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, now bear in mind, this is being written five, six hundred years before the time of Pentecost. But already the Jewish writer of this psalm knows that this is how powerful the Spirit of God is. It's not the regular world and then the Spirit of God as an addition. It is the regular world breathing the Spirit of God, otherwise it wouldn't exist. If you take away their breath, they perish and return to their dust. When you send forth your Spirit, here we come to the application to Pentecost, they are created recreated. Christ is the first of the new creation. And then everybody else. And you renew the face of the earth. It would be interesting to think what the world would be like if this world was completely renewed by the Spirit of God. I figure we wouldn't have the cocaine problem that we have in Washington, the problem with the new scientifically modified marijuana, just to name two problems that are killing young people in the city. So you have the whole idea of the breath of God, and that is important because it harkens back to, as you can see at the bottom of the screen there, a quote from Genesis 2.7. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Nothing until he has the breath of life, and then he is living. This is a gift from the living God. And don't forget, Jesus tells people who will listen to him, he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. There is a whole connection here in the way in which the Spirit of God is a living spirit. It is the source of our life. Very interesting connection that I found when I was digging a little. There you have Moses' meeting tent. So we're jumping backwards in time to way before the time of the kingdom. And what we're finding is that in the book of Numbers 11:17, I will also, this is God speaking to Moses. Mo Moses is having a tough time administering the uh, people of Israel. They're all coming to him with small problems. I lost my sandal. You got to tell Mrs. So-and-so that she's got the goat that I am pretty sure is our goat. <coughs> All the way up to my son just was killed by so-and-so's son and I want justice. And so what you have is Moses complaining to God. He's not meant to work in Washington. And <laughs> he says, God says, I will take some of the spirit that is on you, as Moses, and will confer it on them, that they may share the burden of the people with you. Another dimension of the Holy Spirit. Sharing the burden of each other. 
tied into that, the gift of leadership. All right, when we have an ordination, conferral of the Holy Spirit. All right, leadership. Second reading. Yes, we're going slowly, but we're going to get there. For in, just taking three lines, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. There's that sense of incorporation again, something that we have to work our way into understanding. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free persons, all these people were social categories in the empire. And we were all given to drink of the one, the unity of God, the unity of the people of God, the one spirit. Now we come to the sequence which is read before or sung before the gospel. And I just took five, six lines out of it because We've been learning a lot about the Spirit, but there's always more to learn. And the sequence, which we think was written by Innocent III, and could have been written by probably four or five other people as kind of suggested authors, but let's take it as, as being the, this work of Innocent III. It's one of the four medieval sequences that is included in the new missal that was written in 1570. The other medieval sequences were dropped. These four were kept, this one referring to the Spirit of God. Now, this is all in the form of a petition. Heal our wounds, our strength renew. On our dryness pour your dew. Notice, whoever wrote this knows that we are wounded, we are, our strength is weak, we experience dryness very often, wash the stains of guilt away, there's another part of the human condition, bend the stubborn heart, yeah, good luck with that, God is, <laughs> God is the only one who can pull this off. Now notice, bend the human heart and will, okay, that's one of the powers of the soul, the will. We're going to come to the intellect just now. Melt the frozen, warm the chill, guide the steps that go astray, on the faithful who adore, and confess you evermore, in your sevenfold gift descend. We don't have time to go into the seven gifts of the Spirit, but they are divided up into two groups. Gifts that aid our intellect, because we need to be illuminated by the truth of God. The advocate will come and teach you all truth. And there are gifts that help us with our will so that we actually start to make better choices than we make before. Finally, we come to the gospel. And just again, a few lines out of the gospel lovely icon to represent this. Jesus speaking to the apostles saying, as the Father has sent me, and very important word there, sent, there's a momentum, if you use a word from Hans Urs von Balthasar, a momentum out from Jesus through us to the world. So God is with us, the Spirit of God is with us, but we have to be cooperating and doing our moving. There's a very careful understanding of the human being here, and it's so that God respects our humanity, respects our free will, respects our intellect, but at the same time, should we start to make a move, sometimes even God will suggest to us a move, we will start to move in that direction. We will start to act maybe stronger than we would have acted before. Maybe with more courage. 
maybe with more devotion and respect to the person we are approaching. This is all very gentle. Uh, God is not like a hurricane that literally rips us up and throws us around. God usually is very, very gentle. And if you reflect on your own life, you know that. That's something that happens maybe five or six times in our lives and we use those new points of experience to illuminate our lives for decades to come. The other point I want to note is what you have is Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. There is the sacramental power of the Holy Spirit coming from Christ. Now, not a loudspeaker in the ceiling, not a letter from somebody somewhere else. It's Christ standing right there in front of us and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. So he's dead serious about empowering us. Are we dead serious about receiving that power? And trusting in God that, yes, God has given me that power. And when you see a picture of Cardinal Montini, if you've ever seen a picture of him, very wispy, thin man, I just met him once in Rhodesia, standing at the gates of a steel mill in his Monsignor's hat with his soutane and his, uh, uh, what did he have? He had a purple sash at that point. And what he's saying to the workers is, you have got to start thinking about communism and what is wrong with it. Now, this wispy little man had never spoken to people like this before in his life. He was an aristocrat. He came from a rich family. He never worked with workers. But there he was. He knew the problems of communism in Italy. And he was saying, look, this communism is godless. Now, what gave him the courage to do that? Coming back then to where we started with our architectural instruction, Bernini's 16th century uh, altarpiece, what we have is all those different elements of the sheer power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, thrusting into the world through this celebration of Eucharist, which would have had a liturgy of the Word and a liturgy of the Eucharist. And these people are engaged in that moment of encounter with the Spirit of God and the mission of Jesus Christ. And then they go out into the world. And the last point I want to make, you'll be happy to know at the back there, the last point I want to make is what happens once this power starts rolling. It's not the apologetic church of the Enlightenment where the elite are telling the church, ah, you keep quiet, you stay in your buildings, don't worry us. We know what it means to be a human being. We know what it means to have a religion we know how our society should be designed. None of that. What you have is the very first article from the very first, well, one of the first documents to come out of the Vatican Council, and that is Gaudium et Spes Article 1. The joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. The human humanity of the bishops is asserting itself here and they're saying, look, we're human just like you. 
we have deep empathy with you because of the Spirit opening up our senses to see what's going on around us. Indeed, nothing genuinely human, don't forget God created humanity, so when God renews humanity in the Spirit, it's better humanity. And here, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts. For theirs is a community, communio, incorporation, participation in the one God, all those things, composed of men, this was written in the 60s, men and women, united in Christ. We're always receiving both missions, the Spirit and the Word, united in Christ. They are led by the Holy Spirit in their journey to the kingdom of their Father. There is the great project that the Spirit is driving. And we either get on the train or we don't. The train is going. And the train will get to the kingdom of God. And they have welcomed the news of salvation, which of course again is the work of the Spirit. It helps me to hear what God is saying to me. That is why this community realizes that it is truly linked with mankind. Don't forget this started with the humanity of the Old Testament. God becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ. And now this link with the rest of humanity has a purpose. It becomes a divine channel for God to reach his people. And it is truly linked with mankind and its history by the deepest of bonds. And the bond is the sharing of nature, we're all human together, and the sharing of the spirit, which we are celebrating on this great feast of Pentecost. God bless you. Thank you, thank you very much, Father, for, for a very enlightening and wonderful presentation. I'm always struck um, at, at times like this in the life of the church to ask the question, do you believe, do I believe in what he just said? Amen. Uh, and I'm serious about that. And do we act on it? Do we live it out? That you have been chosen by Jesus Christ. You have been baptized into him and been given a mission. It's not just for the priests and the deacons and the bishops and the Pope to do something about being a Christian. The world is dependent on all of us for that gift of life. God designed it that way. I think that I would encourage you to, to pray on that as you go home. What is, what is your calling that you have been given? And yes, today, as the church is anointed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, to meditate upon what Father has been saying, what the scriptures tell us about Pentecost, that great harvest day, in which you are harvested for the service of the Lord. And if we look out and see, as I've said before, a world that's suffering, a world in darkness is moving further and further away from its Christian roots, we only need to ask ourselves, what are we doing about it? Because it's dependent upon us to bring that life to the world. All right, Father, um, uh, we do our uh, usual question and answer, which is quite short, so we won't keep you around too long. Okay, yes, questions. Okay, the apostles were told to wait for the Spirit before Pentecost came so that they would receive the Spirit with power. Today, Father, you talked about the darkness that's in the world today. It seems to me that the Spirit in the church, as we experience it today, is I experience it as weak. I've heard statistics that for every one person that comes into the Catholic Church, six leave. Whether or not that's accurate, I, I don't know, but it... It just seems to me that it's a little bit weak. Some things I know are done in human power. Some things are good that are done in human power. In the church, a lot of times we have human power that makes things happen. I would say here we have the power of the Spirit in this event, but in much of the church, I don't know that it's there. And then again, we have a lot of human power that's doing bad things. So my question to you is, what are we missing in this spirit of Pentecost, the spirit that should come upon us, 
are we not receiving that and what what do we need to do about it why are we missing that that's uh, kind of a massive question first of all <laughs> no let's start with I, I work with uh, a missionary order and you know one can say well you know the spirit isn't strong but you talk to these priests who are working in places around the country and they are, if you'll pardon the expression, working their tails off, helping people discover Christianity and all the rest of it. You are finding some religious orders who are weak, but you find some religious orders that are absolutely breathtaking in their cooperation with the Spirit. And if you're asking, what do we do? I think the first thing is to pray for the church, which is almost not, it's put in as an afterthought, but in fact, this is our community. So when we are suffering, not all of us are suffering, okay? And when I'm talking suffering, I'm talking being persecuted in Yemen or having your head chopped off in Iraq, etc., etc. That's not happening to us. What we should be doing, and what I do at just about every Mass, is pray for the Christians in the Middle East. Because we should be supporting them, feeling their pain, and supporting them. There are other things we can do. We can be curious about these orders. There's a house up the road from us where I live in Washington who have so many vocations that they're moving furniture out of offices and putting in beds to take all the uh, Dominican candidates who are in their house of studies. They've moved a whole bunch of people down to their parish in uh, downtown. So you've got to look for where it's happening because the church has never been uniform. It depends on humanity. And, you know, I, I was talking to a bishop the other day and I congratulated him on the number of vocations for his diocese. He's got more vocations than any other diocese down the East Coast. And he said to me, it's not me. <laughs> he says, it's my vocations director. And I went and talked to the vocations director and he's just doing his job. But the people are, you know, the candidates are coming in. You know, it's, it's just a, f you've got to look for where the action is. And that's much better than going to a nightclub or whatever. <laughs> Short answer to a very complicated question. Thank you. I just have a question about like the day of Pentecost. Um, so when the disciples started speaking in, uh, in tongues, were they speaking the various languages so that these other people could understand them, or did they just understand? Uh, it just says we hear them in our own tongues. So, so they, okay. Yeah, I think that's the Greek. You know, we're hearing them in our, in our own tongue. So, yeah. And, and this is just a sign of the sheer diversity of the spirit. You know, von Balthasar, the theologian I've been referring to a couple of times, says, if you have problems with God, go and stand in a field of wild flowers. He says this in one of his homilies. This is what God produces, meaning the field of wild flowers. All the diversity and the colors and the butterflies and all the rest of it, that's a product of this absolutely boundless God. And then we can start to say, wow, you know, that, that, that's who God really is. While I'm making my way back there, there's an interesting little patristic uh, tradition, a pious tradition that says that on the day of Pentecost, each of the apostles received the gift of the language to the, uh, of the people to whom they were, they were being sent, which I thought was kind of a, a neat little insight. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, definitely. Father, is there a way, uh, it seems like our, the Holy Spirit is playing second fiddle to the Blessed Virgin, to, to uh, Jesus Christ, 
we don't seem to stress the Holy Spirit. It's like he's, he's not part of us as, as they are. Well, you talk about a spirit and you've got problems. <laughs> it, it's, it's a tough, spirit is a tough category to deal with. In the liturgy, we refer to the Spirit several times during the liturgy, in each of the prayers, and then, of course, at the consecration itself, and if, if the readings and so forth. And so, if you like, what we should do is make sure in our catechesis, I never had any great understanding of the Holy Spirit until I started doing my own reading. And that was when I was in the seminary reading the catechisms of the time and then reading somebody like Aquinas and so on and you begin to realize what that word just unpacks to mean and the fact that we have been given that spirit it's just awesome but it, it's not really you know should we emphasize this or that it's more a case of okay I'm gonna educate myself and you'll find that the church has a wonderful balanced presentation of the truth about the Spirit, among other things. And if you just burrow in there, you'll find some beautiful stuff. Uh, I try to read a, an essay, a theological essay, at least two or three times a week, just to keep appreciating the doors as they open, because we very quickly get kind of closed down into well, I'm busy, I've got to deal with this, this is the prayer I learned when I was five years old, etc., etc., etc. And it's a case of, this is Catholicism. This is what explodes in our consciousness if we will only let it. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.